0: Hello everyone and welcome to the April 11th edition of WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Folson, attorney with Lloyd, Scarn & Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. The California Supreme Court ruled that employers cannot deny a worker a place to sit just because they prefer the person's stand. And they must consider the employee's workstation not their overall duties when determining whether to provide a seat. The court's opinion stemmed from lawsuits brought by cashiers at the CVS drugstore chain and tellers at Chase Bank who said they were wrongly denied a place to sit while they work. Experts called the opinion a victory for the cashiers and tellers. The lead plaintiff, Nikia Kilby worked for eight months as a customer service representative for CVS Pharmacy. During both the interview and the training process, CVS told Kilby it expected her to stand while performing her various duties. Although actual duties varied by both store and shift, Kilby's duties included operating a cash register, straightening and stocking shelves, organizing products in front of and behind the sales counter cleaning the register, vacuuming, gathering, shopping baskets, and removing trash. CVS did not provide Kilby a seat for these tasks. Kilby filed a federal class action lawsuit alleging CVS violated California Wage Order number 7-2001 applicable to the mercantile industry. The Federal District Court ruled that an employee's entire range of assigned duties must be considered to determine whether the work permits the use of a seat or requires standing. It noted that there is no dispute that many of the duties performed by clerks and cashiers at CVS require the employee to stand while performing them. Accordingly, it granted summary judgment in favor of CVS and Kilby appealed, in the companion case of Kama, Henderson, and three other bank tellers who worked at J.P. Morgan Chase bank branches, they filed a class action suit against Chase for violating the suitable seating provisions of the same wage order applicable to professional, technical, clerical, mechanical, and similar occupations. The district court noted that the job duties at Chase varied depending upon the shift or branch location and whether the employee was a lead or regular teller. Based on these differences, the federal district court denied class certification and Henderson appealed. Now the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals certified three questions about the wage order that needed clarification to the California Supreme Court. Over a century ago, the legislature responded to the problem of inadequate wages and poor working conditions by establishing the Industrial Welfare Commission, giving it authority to promulgate wage orders establishing conditions of labor. Thus, wage and hour claims are today governed by both the provisions of the Labor Code enacted by the legislature and a series of 18 wage orders. The wage orders in this case provides that all working employees shall be provided with suitable seats when the nature of the work reasonably permits the use of seats. Thus, in answer to the questions posed, the California Supreme Court established the following guidelines. The nature of the work refers to an employee's tasks performed at a given location for which a right to a suitable seat is claimed rather than a holistic consideration of the entire range of an employee's duties anywhere on the job site during a complete shift. If the tasks being performed at a given location reasonably permit sitting and provision of a seat would not interfere with performance of any other tasks, that may require standing a seat is called for. Whether the nature of the work reasonably permits sitting is a question to be determined objectively based on the totality of the circumstances. An employer's business judgment and the physical layout of the workplace are relevant but not dispositive factors. The inquiry focuses on the nature of the work, not an individual employee's characteristics. If an employer argues there is no suitable seat available, the burden is on the employer to prove unavailability. With the answers to this question, the matter will now be decided by the Ninth Circuit in due course. An attorney for the plaintiffs said the decision was a victory for all workers who have been denied a place to sit while they perform repetitive tasks in fixed locations. The Daubert standard is a rule of evidence that determines the admissibility of expert witnesses' testimony during federal legal proceedings and litigation in many states that adopt the rule. During litigation, a party may raise a Daubert motion, which is a special case of motion in limine raised before or during trial to exclude the presentation of unqualified evidence to the jury. The Daubert Trilogy of Cases refers to the three United States Supreme Court cases, starting with the 1993 case of Daubert v. Merrill Dow Pharmaceuticals that established what is known as the Daubert Standard. The second case, General Electric Company v. Joyner, held that a district court judge may exclude expert testimony when testimony is not based upon well-established scientific principles. And the third, 1999 case of Kumo Tire v. Carmichael <clears throat> held that the judge's gatekeeping function identified in Daubert applies to all expert testimony, including that which is non-scientific. California does not use the Daubert standard. It adheres to the liberal Fry general acceptance test instead. Recent efforts to have California courts and the WCAB apply this higher Daubert standard have failed. Earlier this year, the Court of Appeal, in the unpublished case of Star Insurance Company v. WCAB and Maria Rosa Tavares, specifically rejected the Daubert standard in workers' compensation cases. This explains why it is easier to win cases on weak science in California That would not likely succeed in federal courts or states that have adopted the Daubert rule. And a new case this month explains how the Daubert standard works in litigation in those courts that adopted the rule. A federal judge in Philadelphia dismissed more than 300 lawsuits against drug maker Pfizer Incorporated that claimed its antidepressant Zoloft caused birth defects in children born to women who took the drug while they were pregnant. After Daubert hearings that excluded testimony from key expert witnesses for plaintiffs, the court then concluded that plaintiffs had not produced enough evidence to show a plausible scientific link between the drug and birth defects. At the same time, the ruling said that the court recognizes that the final scientific verdict as to whether Zoloft can cause birth defects may not be delivered for many years. The judge explained that the plaintiffs chose when to file their cases, and the court concludes that for the plaintiffs who have continued to pursue their claims, the litigation gates must be closed. The ruling affects more than 300 lawsuits against Pfizer, consolidated before Judge Roof in federal court. A Pfizer spokeswoman said the decision affirms that plaintiffs have failed to produce any reliable scientific evidence demonstrating that Zoloft causes the injuries they alleged. Pfizer had previously prevailed in two trials involving Zoloft birth defect claims in state courts in Philadelphia and Missouri. This case is an example of how the Daubert standard makes it difficult for a plaintiff to prevail in federal courts and those states that use the rule. A WCAB split panel decision clarified that a claims administrator has 24 hours to communicate a UR decision. Here's what happened in the case of Michael Green versus Golden State Staffing. Green injured his spine, neck, right shoulder, and hips at work in 2012. Dr. Jones sent a request for authorization seeking authority for artificial disc replacement, arthroplasty, at the L4-L5 level with a one-to-two-day inpatient stay. The RFA was received by the insurance carrier by facsimile after normal business hours at 6.18 p.m. on Friday, April 17, 2015. The procedure was denied by the UR letter dated April 27, which was served by facsimile on April 27, the same day, just after 6 o'clock p.m. in the evening, again after normal business hours. It was undisputed that the last business day for UR in this case was April 27. The work comp judge found that the utilization review denial was untimely and awarded the requested treatment, but a petition for reconsideration was granted and the decision reversed in the split panel decision. The regulations provide that when a request for authorization is submitted after 5.30 p.m., it is considered to be received on the next business day. In this case, it was submitted after 5.30 p.m. on a Friday, so it is deemed to have been received the next business day, which would be Monday, April 20. The first day in counting any time frame requirement is the day after the receipt of the RFA. The day after the date the RFA was received was Tuesday, April 21. That the, Mon- that the Monday, April 27 UR decision timely issued within five working days of that date because Saturday, April 25th, and Sunday, April 26th were not working days. Section 9792.1.9 says that a prospective UR decision, like the one in this case, shall be communicated to the requesting physician within 24 hours of the decision initially by telephone or facsimile, and in writing within two business days of the decision. In this case, the decision was made on April 27, and it was communicated by facsimile to the treating physician on the same day, which was within 24 hours of the decision. The record shows that the UR decision was both timely made and timely communicated. As such, the UR is valid, and there was no basis for the work comp judge to award the disputed medical treatment. Commissioner Kaplan wrote a dissenting opinion. A major insurance company is litigating with the federal government to be declared unimportant. And MetLife did what no other big American financial firm has dared challenged head-on the legitimacy of the business-shaping decisions made by regulators in the wake of the financial crisis. More remarkably still, it won. A federal court in Washington, D.C. ordered the Financial Stability Oversight Council, a new regulatory committee, to rescind its designation of MetLife as a Strategically Important Financial Institution, or SCIFI, This is a label that required it to have a bigger and thus more expensive cushion of capital. MetLife is one of only four non-banks to have been declared a sci-fi. Prudential Insurance, one of the other three, exceeded the designation after grumbling about it. General Electric said little, but has since dispensed with much of its financial operations. And AIG seemed to accept the new status, perhaps because being a sci-fi is seen as being synonymous with being too big to fail and thus implies a government backstop. MetLife, however, had come through the financial crisis in good shape, earning the confidence of its customers. It judged that whatever additional reassurance they might glean from implicit government backing was outweighed by the costs in terms of using extra capital and of additional security from regulators. Moreover, it maintained that it was not sufficiently intertwined with other institutions to be considered systemic. MetLife argued in federal court that the criteria for committee's decision was vague and arbitrary, and the federal court agreed and removed the sci-fi designation. Jack Lew, the Treasury Secretary who chairs the Oversight Committee, strongly disagreed and would defend its designation process without specifying whether it would appeal. The ruling only applies to MedLife. No similar cases are pending. Yet the ramifications are enormous. The following day, GE asked the committee to rescind its sci-fi label given its recent restructuring. Until now, other financial firms felt they had little recourse against regulatory decisions, regardless of how much they disagreed. Rather than resort to the courts, they hired lobbyists in the hope of persuading the government to go easy. This may now change. Ironically, the decision comes a little too late for MetLife itself, which is spinning off its American life insurance business in part to ward off this committee. MedLife says this divestment will still go ahead. But MedLife's victory may give other financial firms the luxury of a little more breathing room before making such decisions. And in regulatory news, the Center for Investigative Reporting is a nonprofit news organization based in Emeryville, California, and has conducted investigative journalism since 1977. It is known for producing stories that reveal scandals or corruption in government agencies and corporations. In 2010, the CIR launched its California Watch reporting project. Its current investigatory effort exposes fraud in the California workers' comp system. Its current analysis of more than a million court cases details how workers have been swept into medical billing mills prescribed unregulated medications, and advised to undergo sometimes unneeded or high-risk surgery by doctors who were raking in bribes. Prosecutors are now pursuing charges against more than 80 medical professionals who have handled more than 100,000 injured workers' cases, most of them originating in Southern California. They allege that the cases account for $1 billion in fraud, And now the DWC admits many of the largest lien claimants in our system are currently criminally indicted and still claiming payment from the workers' comp system. The Sacramento Bee quotes DIR Director Christine Baker as admitting that she knows there's a problem. Baker's agency worked with lawmakers in 2012 for a law that was meant to limit the filing of medical liens. It established a $150 fee required to demand payment in workers' compensation courts. It also gave insurers new powers to deny money to providers that are not approved to treat injured workers. Yet, Baker admits the number of liens filed last year is even higher. Baker said her department has begun reviewing the medical providers who currently file the largest number of liens. And her review notes that many of these lien claimants are criminally indicted. Don Marshall, the chairman of the state's Fraud Assessment Commission, says that injured workers have become a commodity, something to trade and sell on the open market for no other reason than to generate income. He concludes that workers who've been hurt on the job often are the last to find out that they have been exploited if they find out at all. The WCIRB proposes a mid-year premium rate reduction citing lower medical loss development as well as indemnity and medical severities that continue to emerge below expectations. The filing will propose a July 1, 2016 average advisory pure premium rate of $2.30 per $100 of payroll which is 10.4% lower than the corresponding industry average filed pure premium rate of $2.57 as of January 1 this year, and 5% less than the insurance commissioner's approved average January 1 pure premium rate. The governing committee's decision was based on the WCIRB Actuarial Committee's analysis of insurer loss and loss adjustment experience as of December 31 last year. But allocated loss adjustment expenses in the post-SB863 environment is emerging higher than projected, and liens increased sharply in 2015. In addition, cumulative trauma claims continue to increase, particularly in the Los Angeles region. Despite these upward pressures on system costs, Lower frequency, lower medical severity, and favorable loss development warranted a reduction in the industry average premium rate as of this coming July. And now our crime report. There is growing evidence that the workers' compensation system offers a second career for fraudulent doctors who have been barred from other healthcare systems. Medical professionals may be banned from the Medicare system seeking money to see patients if they've been convicted of defrauding a health care program or fraud-related offenses. But those banned providers have no problem starting a second career in the California workers' compensation system. Medicare banned Dr. Thomas Herrick in 2006 after he pleaded guilty to charges related to writing reports based on diagnostic tests that turned out to be fraudulent. Herrick then found a new line of work in the workers' compensation medical system. His job was to review data on injured workers' sleep patterns and issue reports needed to bill insurers. Five years later, prosecutors accused Herrick of fraud again. They say he was writing virtually identical reports that gave rise to sham billing. One expert testified in court that Herrick's sleep study reports were so bad that they failed to address one worker's serious breathing problems for months, a lapse that he said could harm the general public. That case is pending in Orange County Superior Court. Herrick's attorney, Robert Most, said Herrick stands by the reports and is fighting the charges a Center for Investigative Reporting Analysis of Public Records found that several other chiropractors and doctors banned by Medicare moved their careers into workers' compensation as well. Among them, chiropractor David C. Nguyen. Medicare banned him in 2005 over an insurance fraud conviction. Earlier this year, San Diego prosecutors indicted him for insurance fraud again this time for passing along bribes from a chiropractor to a therapy center, both workers' compensation medical providers. And Medicare doesn't bar just doctors, pharmacists, and chiropractors with histories of fraud. It also takes a look at who's in charge. Officials with the Department of Health and Human Services Inspector General's office will investigate clinic operators' ownership and ban those with a 5% or greater stake who have a history of certain fraud convictions. The rule covers direct and indirect ownership. No such rule exists in workers' comp. State Labor Department officials say they do not have the authority to review the practices of medical professionals. Instead, they said in a statement that the boards that issue licenses to medical professionals are the appropriate authority for regulation and review. Yet, no board or commission checks who's running workers' comp clinics. The state's chiropractic board stripped Fred Cahilli of his license and denied his attempt to get it back in 2013. But he still signs physicians' paychecks at two Los Angeles County workers' comp clinics. Cahilly's legal problems started in 1995 when an FBI agent informed him that he was under investigation for paying $135,000 in kickbacks to auto injury lawyers. Court records say Cahilly was seeing a steady flow of patients who had been hurt in car crashes. Facing an indictment, he began to work undercover for the FBI. He recorded phone conversations with lawyers who demanded a cut of his medical treatment income in exchange for a parade of patients. Cahilli ultimately pleaded guilty to wire fraud and tax evasion and lost his chiropractic license in 2000. Twelve years later, he returned to the chiropractic board hoping to get his license reinstated. But the board refused, citing subsequent arrests for vandalism, a hit-and-run collision, driving without a license, and making harassing phone calls. He appealed the decision to a higher court, but lost. Yet, Kelly remains heavily involved in workers' compensation clinics, something that would draw scrutiny under Medicare's rules as a fraud prevention measure. In the vacuum of such oversight in workers' comp, prosecutors now are again pursuing charges against Kelly. He was accused in February of insurance fraud for accepting kickbacks on behalf of First Choice Healthcare Medical Group clinics in Los Angeles and Panorama City. In exchange for the kickbacks, he allegedly directed staff at the clinics to dispense expensive pain creams to injured workers. The charges against Cayley say he directed an attorney in 2009 to put the clinic ownership in the name of a physician, but Cahilly controls the bank accounts. Attorney Malcolm McNeil, who advises First Choice, however, said Cahilly does not own the clinics. Former Carlsbad resident David Perez was sentenced in federal court to 30 months in prison for selling unapproved Energy Wave medical devices over the internet and mailing them to customers throughout the United States. Perez admitted in his plea agreement that he marketed the Energy Wave device using the website www.myenergywave.com. The Energy Wave device consists of a microcurrent frequency generator with a digital readout, two stainless steel cylinders, two personal application plates with connectors, and lead wire for the cylinders and plates. Users were provided with an operating manual and a list of auto codes that set forth over 450 digital settings for the device, supposedly to treat specific conditions from abdominal pain, AIDS, diabetes, to stroke, ulcer, and worms. Perez admitted selling each device for approximately twelve to $1,500 and receiving gross proceeds of approximately $271,000. He also acknowledged that he intended to defraud and mislead the Food and Drug Administration by attempting to evade the agency's oversight of medical claims by maintaining a separate website to which he referred customers who needed to obtain the auto codes, Prez admitted that he knew or should have known a number of his customers were vulnerable because they had purchased the device in an attempt to cure cancer and that they were marketing the device without a proper FDA approval. And in medical news, a new study says that total disc replacement is more effective than the more traditional discectomy infusion. Artif- artificial disc replacement is a newer surgical procedure for relieving spine pain. Similar to hip or knee joint replacements, a disc replacement substitutes a mechanical device for an intervertebral disc in the spine. The device is meant to restore motion to the spine by replacing the worn degenerated disc. It is an alternative to the anterior cervical discectomy fusion a surgical procedure that eliminates motion at the diseased disc level. Artificial disc replacement initially gained FDA approval in 2004. These procedures were first approved for the lumbar spine and more recently cervical spine and total disc replacements at one level and now at two levels. The natural cervical intervertebral disc is an amazing mechanical structure from an engineering perspective. It has the ability to absorb a large compressive load while still providing an impressive range of motion between the bones and the neck. Duplicating the natural disc's form and function with a synthetic or artificial disc is challenging. However, several artificial cervical discs have been developed and are available as a surgical option for patients with symptomatic cervical disc problems. One of the newer developments the MOBI-C is a cobalt chromium alloy and polyethylene mole-bearing prosthesis specifically designed as a bone-sparing disc replacement for both one and two levels. All other cervical disc prostheses are FDA-approved for only one-level use. Although both procedures statistically treat cervical pathology, fusion alters the cervical mechanics of by placing increased stresses on adjacent segments. This may cause degeneration at those adjacent levels. In comparison, at least in theory, total disc replacement preserves the motion of the operated segment, and thus places comparatively less stresses on adjacent levels. This may serve to protect those levels. Now a five-year study comparing cervical total disc replacement with anterior discectomy infusion for two-level disc disease has just been published in the Journal of Neurosurgery, Spine. Both procedures significantly improve general and disease-specific measures compared with the baseline. However, there is greater improvement and a lower rate of reoperation in the two-level disc replacement patients. In both groups, the overall rates of patient satisfaction were high. However, there was significantly higher reported patient satisfaction in the cervical total disc replacement group versus the fusion group. In 2015, the healthcare industry observed the emergence of captive pharmacies, or pharmacies that enter arrangements to be owned or operated by pharmaceutical manufacturers. A captive pharmacy is one that derives the vast majority of prescription volume from one manufacturer or one product. Captive pharmacies typically promote the manufacturer's products instead of other lower-cost, equally effective medications. The intent is to circumvent formulary management programs designed to protect the patient and the planned sponsors from unnecessary high-cost medications. The most high-profile captive pharmacy arrangements were between Valiant Pharmaceuticals International and Philidor RX Services, and also between Horizon Pharma PLC and Linden Care Pharmacy. Express Scripts Holding the largest U.S. pharmacy benefit manager, is reviewing and evaluating all similar captive pharmacy arrangements. CVS Health, the second largest pharmacy benefit manager, also said it is continuing to investigate other pharmacies to uncover inappropriate billing and dispensing activities. Some say Valiant has encouraged doctors to submit prescriptions for its products to Philidor RX services rather than send patients to the corner drugstore. That makes it more difficult for pharmacists and insurers to substitute a less expensive alternative. And Philidor handles the task of fighting for reimbursement from the insurers, taking that problem off the doctor's hands. Philidor Rx Services was denied a license to dispense drugs in California because the state said it had not been truthful identifying its owners and financial officers. When Philidor failed to get the California license, entities affiliated with it bought stakes in at least two California pharmacies. One of those, R&O Pharmacy in Camarillo, has presented evidence in litigation that the entity that bought the stake tried to hide that it was a front for Philidor. It also claims that Philidor used Arno's pharmacy identification numbers to help fill its own prescriptions. Arno Pharmacy is a small storefront community pharmacy amid rows of low-slung office buildings in Camarillo, California. The owner 64-year-old pharmacist Russell Reitz agreed to sell his business to a Delaware-registered company for $350,000. But before the sale agreement was finished, other pharmacies began using an RNO identification number to bill for prescriptions that RNO had not filled, sometimes for drugs the store did not stock. So, the owner held on to the checks he received until he could discover what was happening to his pharmacy. Valiant's general counsel soon sent a letter to him and claimed his pharmacy owed Valiant in connection with gross invoices of nearly $70 million. Then, as a result of publicity following the RO lawsuit, Valiant finally revealed that it had a secret network of pharmacies pushing its products around the country. Philidor Rx Services has also had questionable transactions with West Wilshire Pharmacy in Los Angeles. And that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, iPod, or Android device. By searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. Again, I'm Renee Folson, attorney with Floyd, Scarin and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Please drop by again next week for more news.